0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message
1: comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This is The Guardian.
2: Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration In the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week, you can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde looks on as Prince Andrew is chauffeured back into the Windsor fold by Prince William. How Shallow How almost broke Gwyneth Paltrow's body double. And pop sensation Olivia Rodrigo contemplates overnight pop superstardom, plagiarism and growing up in public.
3: Before we begin, just a warning.
2: There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, it seems that some role rehabilitations are faster than others, observed Marina Hyde. The Duke of York's jaunt with Kate and Wills, however, must have set a new world record. Read by Evelyn Miller.
4: Do all fusses die down eventually, permitting the fussy to return to life largely as they knew it? while the public scratches its head and tries to recall precisely which scandal, multi-million dollar out-of-court settlement, Pizza Express branch it remembers them from. The question arises after the return of Prince Andrew to the Royal Tableau, driven last week by Prince William to church near Balmoral, where the Windsors are currently all gathered, with just the two notable exceptions. I must say, I do think that William and Andrew missed a trick not doing carpool karaoke as they rocked up to Crappy Kirk either to take that back for good, or the Gary Puckett and the Union Gaps jailbait classic, Young Girl. Even so, how fitting that this staged sighting should occur on the very weekend, crowds of people descended on Scotland in the hope of spying the Loch Ness Monster. You can imagine being there when the cry went up. Oh my God, there it is. Look, you can see its head and neck in the front seat, right next to Prince William. Quick, get a photo, even if friends will later claim it's fake because its fingers aren't chubby enough. Anyhow, welcome back, Uncle Andy. Typically, royal rehab efforts move at a more glacial pace. For example, the plan to make the British public fall back in love with Prince Charles after his divorce from Princess Diana and her tragic death was slated by courtiers to take years of slow and painstaking image work. But the picture of Andrew being driven last Sunday by William and Kate, the family's biggest current stars, comes merely one year after the Duke of York finally settled a civil claim against him by Virginia Guffrey. Guffrey was treated as a sex slave by Andrew's friend, the late international pedo trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, and long alleged that she was sexually assaulted by Andrew three times when she was 17. The Duke denies everything, and his reported $12 million settlement did not contain an admission of guilt. And there he was, on Sunday, next to William up front, with Kate relegated to creasing her outfit on the back seat. As indicated, these royal stagings are so often wordless scenes, so we don't know the full story behind this picture. I suppose it's remotely possible that when the family were having breakfast that morning, Prince William clocked the presence of Prince Andrew and hissed, You need to spend a very long time in church indeed. In fact, you know what? I'll drive you there myself. Possible, but vanishingly unlikely. Andrew was, after all, pictured exiting the church at the same time as the others, instead of lingering for two or three hundred years after. So this is not some accident, some last-minute instance of Andrew calling shotgun, or of the Waleses suddenly sighing, OK, fine, jump in the front and we'll give you a lift. Please remember that we are dealing with a family widely held to telegraph fantastically complex and significant messages merely by their choice of brooch or jacket colour, which the public is duly invited to pass for meaning. So sticking a disgraced dimwit in the front seat of your car is not just some random thing that happens of a Sunday morning. This is a planned and choreographed moment with William as the designated driver. Even so, doing Andrew's reintegration at Balmoral does feel particularly on the nose. Attendance here connotes the most particular closeness to the royal family's wellspring of ineffable majesty and authority which is perhaps why Epstein himself jumped at an invitation to Balmoral back in 1999, when Andrew had him and Ghislaine Maxwell come and visit the castle. This is the version of staying somewhere at Her Majesty's pleasure that doesn't involve sewage in your cell, or being allowed to take your own life because it would be better all round for your famous men WhatsApp group. And yes, I do know that Geoffrey and Ghislaine were in New York jails, so not technically her Madge's guests, but you get the point. There were probably 500 things Epstein would have objectively preferred doing than yumping round Balmoral, even if 499 of them were illegal. But the frisson of tightness with the royal family was worth journeying to the deck of the famously Spartan log cabin on the estate, and posing with Maxwell on the same bench on which the late Queen Elizabeth II was frequently pictured, even if she wasn't in residence at the castle at the time. Epstein kept the photo of him and Ghislaine at this cabin in his Manhattan mansion, which was eventually raided by police. Thereafter, it was presented as evidence in Maxwell's trial, as part of prosecutors' attempts to show that she and Epstein were partners in crime. The third wheel on that trip was Prince Andrew himself. Presumably he took the photo. That's a typical question with those three. With the notorious picture of Andrew with his arm round the hip of the then 17-year-old Virginia Roberts while Ghislaine smirks in the background, often believed to have been taken by Epstein himself? Quite why the Prince and Princess of Wales wished to form a new photo trio with Uncle Andy is a mystery, but it comes across as the clearest signal that Andrew's banishment from the family is the type we could all live with, one where you get a free mansion, don't have to work, and all your significant rallies appear to believe your side of the story and are happy enough to give you a helping hand. The comeback will be greater than the setback, or at least of commensurate size.
2: That was The Windsors Are All About Forgiving and Forgetting When It Comes to Prince Andrew By Marina Hyde Read by Evelyn Miller Next When Gwyneth Paltrow put on a fat suit for the Farrelly Brothers blockbuster, Shallow Hal, An unknown acting student, Ivy Snitzer, was hired as her body double Just two years later, Snitzer was starving to death Amelia Tate examines the lasting impact of a film that would never be made now. Read by Suan Braun. This article includes references to eating disorders, so
3: please take care when listening. Ivy Snitzer has screen presence, even on Zoom, with her safety pin earrings, nose piercing, and reddish purplish hair. Yet, no one saw her face in the hit film. Now 42, and an insurance agency owner in Philadelphia, Snitzer was Gwyneth Paltrow's body double for the role of Rosemary in 2001's Shallow Hell. While Paltrow wore a fat suit for scenes featuring her face, Snitzer's body was used for close-ups of Rosemary's arms, torso, and thighs. At the time, 20-year-old Snitzer was a Los Angeles-based acting student with aspirations to become an actor or comedian. Mostly, I just wanted to be funny, she says. One day, a friend from her improv class called her up because he had heard about this thing. To this day, Snitzer doesn't know the wording of the Shallow Hell casting call. Without asking any questions, she drove with her friend to a room where casting directors took a bunch of pictures. A day later, Snitzer had a callback. She was invited to sit down with the film's directors, the Farrelly brothers, and just talk. They just wanted to know that I was somebody who was cool to work with, Snitzer says. Within the hour, she had got the job. She wasn't phased by the premise of the movie, in which are Hal, Jack Black, is hypnotized so that he only sees inner beauty. The gag is that he falls in love with a woman who is overweight. It felt progressive to her at the time. At that point... If you saw someone obese in a movie, they were a villain, she says. Whereas Rosemary was cool. She was popular. She had friends. Snitzer, who has since lost a significant amount of weight, has zero negative memories of shooting the film. It was so exciting. It was just fun to be a part of a movie. There are so few people who actually get to do that, she says. The cast and crew treated me like I really mattered like they couldn't make the movie without me. And Snitzer was made to feel really comfortable when her body was being filmed. Black, she says, was a delightful person, and Paltrow was really nice. She regularly complimented Snitzer's acting. It didn't cross her mind to be offended by the film's jokes about her size, because she made those kind of jokes, too. But, she says, it didn't occur to me that the film would be seen by millions of people. And when Shallow Hal was released in 2001, it was like the worst parts about being fat were magnified. And no one was telling me I was funny. To promote the film, Snitzer was invited to give TV and magazine interviews. And, although initially excited, she soon realized it also acted as an open invitation to strangers to approach her on the street. Many were angry that Snitzer had said, It's not the worst thing in the world to be fat. Some claimed she was promoting obesity. One person found her address and sent her diet pills. There were love letters, too. Someone mailed her a symphony they had composed, especially for her. I got really scared, she says. I was like, maybe I'm done with the concept of fame. Maybe I don't want to be an actor. Maybe I'll do something else. She moved back to New York to live with her parents, where she worked as a bartender, occasionally performing comedy, and was briefly a catering waiter. Casting directors kept offering her roles, but they were mean. I didn't want to play a woman who was so ugly and lonely that she molested young boys because that was the only way she could get affection. This, Snitzer says, was the antithesis of why she had sought fame in the first place. I just want to make people laugh. I don't want to make people sad. The trouble is as I discover speaking to Snitzer, that the story of her post-shallow hell life is sad. Less than two years after Shallow Hell was released, she was technically starving to death. In 2003, she had a gastric band surgery, which reduced the size of her stomach and restricted what she could eat. But shortly after the procedure, the band slipped, and I got a torsion, like dogs get and then die. The timing couldn't have been worse. Snitzer didn't have health insurance, so she had to get a temp job at an asset management firm in Beverly Hills. She had moved back to L.A. with her comedy-writing partner. She also had to wait for her probation period to end before she was given health insurance, meaning she spent three months unable to consume anything thicker than water without throwing up. She lived off sports drinks and watered-down nutritional shakes. I was so thin you could see my teeth through my face, and my skin was all gray, she says. And I was just so bitchy all the time. I kind of alienated a lot of my friends. My mother was also dying. It was bleak. Humans shouldn't have to experience how very bleak that particular time in my life was. She became so malnourished that doctors were not able to perform surgery to remove her band. First, They had to give her a peripherally inserted central catheter, PICC line, to provide her with liquid nutrition. For four months, she had to hook herself up to an IV fluid bag every night after work in order to, as she puts it, not die. Due to further complications, doctors ultimately performed a gastric bypass operation to remove part of her stomach. To this day, she has to eat weird tiny portions and can't eat and drink at the same time. I ask Snitzer why she got the initial weight loss surgery. I don't know, she says. Then, because I was supposed to. If you're fat, you're supposed to try to not be. She cites writer Roxanne Gay's idea of a good fat person, someone who orders salads and never eats burgers in front of other people. Snitzer thought getting the surgery meant she was being good. Filming Shallow Hell was empowering for Snitzer because of what happened off-screen, not on it. Out of all of the fat people in the world that they could have hired for that job, they hired me because of my personality, she says. Before, I had to fight really hard to be seen as a personality and not just my size. She also says that undergoing a weight loss procedure 15 months later wasn't connected. It was more of a coincidence. A doctor told her she wouldn't live to see 40 without surgery, and she thought, fantastic, something that'll fix it. That's fine. Snitzer first noticed herself gaining weight around the age of 10. She describes herself as part of the ketchup-is-a-vegetable generation, who was randomly the first very obese person in her family. She could brush it off when other kids were mean about her body, but hated when adults try to offer well-intentioned advice. She counted calories as a teen, and dieting eventually transitioned into a disorder. Restricting started to feel good. I felt like I got some control over the situation that everyone was telling me to control. By the time she was filming Shallow Hal*, she felt insecure, but she also felt confident. I wasn't body positive, because it didn't really exist that way. I was kind of me positive, because I was like, I'm funny, that's good enough. Still, in an attempt to be good, Snitzer ate healthily on set. During filming, a senior person in production hugged her and remarked that she was losing weight. Snitzer was happy. He wasn't. He reminded her, This entire movie is based on you not losing weight. When the filming ended, Snitzer was committed to the idea of being a good fatty. I hated my body the way I was supposed to, she says. I ate a lot of salads. I had eating disorders that I was very proud of. After surgery and before the gastric band slipped, she expedited her weight loss by exercising excessively, purging and restricting her calorie intake. It didn't occur to me that I was supposed to be ashamed of those behaviors. She says that when she was overweight, people would avoid eye contact with her. But when she was at her sickest, so malnourished that she needed medical intervention to stay alive, Everything was so different. People smiled at her, moved out of her way, and paid for her coffee. It was really nice to be treated well. She feels scared and sad that watching shallow hell may have made overweight young girls feel bad. But sometimes she receives complimentary Instagram messages from women saying she was the first fat representation they ever saw on screen. After the gastric band slipped, the behavioral disorders calmed down somewhat. Because I couldn't consume anything, my mindset became more about how much I could manage to consume, not how little. She gained weight after her second surgery and resumed socializing with friends. Six months later, she met her husband, who came over for a sleepover on the second date and kind of never left. The couple have a 13-year-old daughter who has never expressed a desire to watch Shallow Hell. And Snitzer says she's not going to run out and re-watch it. In fact, the only time she ever saw the film was when it premiered. She wore an outfit her mom had made, which meant I finally had a coat that had sleeves long enough. She planned to sneak around the back, but the cast encouraged her to walk the red carpet, which, again, is extremely cool when you're a 20-year-old kid. She doesn't remember how it felt to watch the film. I love that it's a cool thing I did one time, she says. It's a fun story she tells over drinks. It didn't make me feel bad about myself. Until, you know, other people started telling me I probably should have felt bad about myself. The last thing I want to be is one of those people. But a few days after our initial call... I call Schnitzer back to say that I'm struggling to get my head around the fact that her weight-loss surgery came so soon after Shallow Hell premiered. I can't understand how the latter wasn't connected to the former. I know, Schnitzer says. I'm sure it was. I'm sure I wanted to be small and not seen. I'm sure that's there. But I don't ever remember consciously thinking about it. Today, she doesn't regret the surgery doesn't worry too much about eating, and likes to think that she has found a lot of stability in between the two extremes of her past. She has cheered the rise of the body-positive movement and is inspired by her daughter's outspoken generation. But her story was never simple, and she says her relationship to her body changes every day. I was always my personality, she adds. I've always been a personality in this body. That
2: was I Wanted to Be Small and Not Seen, How Shallow How Almost Broke Gwyneth Paltrow's Body Double by Amelia Tate, read by Sue Ann Braun. If you've been affected by the issues raised in this piece, we've included details of a helpline you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. We'll be back after this short break.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news, ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree. That's amazon.com newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real
3: deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Welcome back to Weekend.
2: Finally, pop star Olivia Rodrigo was a TV child star, then the single Driver's Licence made her a music phenomenon. Now, on her second album, the singer talks to Laura Snapes about trying to make sense of her extraordinary young life. Read by Sue Braun.
3: Of all the highlights of Olivia Rodrigo's first two years as a pop star, breaking streaming records with her heartbroken debut single Driver's License, aged 17, helping President Biden encourage young people to get vaccinated, winning three Grammys after she released her debut album, Sour, her set at Glastonbury 2022 still stands out. Rodrigo already had big plans for her Saturday afternoon performance. She asked Lily Allen if they could duet on her favorite song by the British pop star, her 2009 hit, Fuck You. Then the day before Rodrigo was due to play, Roe v. Wade was overturned, removing the federal right to abortion in the U.S. She was in London. We were all like, we should stay here, says Rodrigo, 20, when we meet in August in Pasadena, the L.A. adjacent city where she lived as a teenager. We were so devastated, crying because it felt so surreal and so awful. Then Alan texted her. She goes, see the news? I guess we know who we're going to dedicate this song to. Alan recalls Rodrigo pacing backstage, memorizing her speech. On stage, Rodrigo said, I'm devastated and terrified, and so many women and so many girls are going to die because of this. Then dedicated fuck you to the five members of the Supreme Court who have shown us that at the end of the day, they truly don't give a shit about freedom. Listing them by name. We hate you, Rodrigo said. Then danced around with Alan. Middle fingers flipped. It was perfect. Meeting incomprehensible injustice with petulant anger. That's what music's for, says Rodrigo, expressing your rage and dissatisfaction. If there was a backlash, she didn't see it. Before she was a pop star, Rodrigo had been a Disney Channel actor since the age of 12, most notably a lead in the meta-mockumentary high school musical The Musical, the series. H.S.M., in which a group of teenagers stage a theatrical production of the Zac Efron juggernaut. The Disney-to-pop pipeline is well-trodden, and it usually takes a long time for young women making that transition to find anything close to free expression, straightened by America's puritanical double standards and the commercial imperative threat to be a good role model. Historically, it has arrived in a repressed explosion of latex and panting long before the considered political statements. Before Rodrigo set, she considered her many young girl fans, which I always think about, and concluded, that's actually why it's so important. I would love, if I was a little girl, to see someone stand up for future me like that. Alan can testify to her young fan contingent. When she got Rodrigo's invitation, she says, my daughter saw the email and was like, if you don't do it, I will kill you. Even when Rodrigo was at Disney, she would tweet her anger about issues such as Trump's various misdeeds or the murder of George Floyd. Similarly, if there was a kickback, she recalls, I didn't really pay attention to it or let it affect me. Being a puppet, she says, doesn't work anymore. Rodrigo and I meet in a cafe a few weeks after her rampaging comeback single Vampire, the first taste of her second album, hit number one in the U.S., in the queue, she says that this is her favorite joint because it's where Timothy Chalamet's character works in Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird. More significantly, it's where she found out at 16 that she had landed HSM, having previously starred in Disney's Bizarre Fark, about two offbeat tween bloggers. Rodrigo orders an iced chai latte, and points out the table where she was revising for chemistry or something bad when she got the call. She would never attend real high school, instead studying on the sets of both shows. Rodrigo, a music nut since she was little, was also a budding songwriter with a ready-made audience for the demos she shared online, though she worried that she wouldn't connect because her life was so unusual. It's striking that she sort of picks a film set for us to meet on. Then, Disney execs invited her to write an original song for her HSM character. After the piano ballad All I Want went viral, Rodrigo sought a record deal. Unlike her Disney forebearers, Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, and Demi Lovato, she chose not to make, inevitably sanitized, music for the corporation's in-house label and picked Interscope Geffen because they were the only label she met that perceived her as a songwriter, not a pop star, and didn't blow smoke up her ass. If HSM made Rodrigo a star to Gen Z, Driver's License, released in January 2021, made her a household name. Another piano-led epic, albeit with a very un-Disney climax, I Still Fucking Love You, it provided mass catharsis during that desolate winter lockdown, and it hit number one worldwide. Her first live performance was at the Brit Awards, where she met her childhood hero Taylor Swift. Her second was on Saturday Night Live, just days later. She wrote her Grammy-winning debut album with producer Daniel Nigro, wielding balladry and pop-punk to excavate her first heartbreak. Rodrigo was the first pop act to break through to superstardom since Billie Eilish, and the first Filipina-American, though the immediacy of her success meant she didn't have the buffer of Eilish's rise through tastemaker blogs or even Swift's country music cosseting to find her feet. She also still had to graduate from virtual high school and film another season of HSM. When I first interviewed her back in 2021, she was studying for finals and ultimately got a 4.1 grade point average, essentially A+. I did my AP classes, university-level courses offered at high school. I was very focused on it, she says as we head to an outside bench. I was a good student. And not since Britney Spears had a former Disney star come to dominate pop culture so suddenly. Sour gave Rodrigo a second number one, and the pop punk rager Good for You, though by comparison Rodrigo had total control over her career, demonstrating the evolution of the archetypal female pop superstar over the last twenty-five years. She bristles at the idea of being a pop star, yet seems a good student of her predecessors, the cautionary tales and the stakes of failure and managed her supercharged ascent with striking caution. Rather than play arenas just because she could, Rodrigo toured smaller theaters to develop her fledgling stagecraft. She seldom intentionally made headlines beyond her musical activity. It wasn't that calculated, she says. It's not like I was like, in order to have a sustainable career, I'm going to roll it out slowly and this and that. I kind of had overnight success. I'd been working on songs for years and preparing for that moment for a long time. But in many respects, it was very instantaneous, and so taking things slower was my way of coping. That approach was partly induced by the media obsession with the breakup behind driver's license, which felt fairly disgraceful, given that it essentially involved kids barely of age. Rodrigo's assumed ex, her HSM co-star Joshua Bassett, ended up hospitalized with heart failure from the stress caused by press scrutiny. As gossip vultures swirled, Rodrigo disconnected from social media and pledged to remain low-key in her fame. Today, no one notices the slight 20-year-old in a black T-shirt and long khaki skirt she found on Depop, leaving her sweet security guard in peace with a crossword. All of the drama that surrounded driver's license was baptism by fire, she says. Cleaving her personal identity from her celebrity persona became a priority she worked through in therapy. I'm happiest when I can separate the two. Rodrigo calls her debut headline tour the ultimate practice in maintaining that distinction, learning to equally enjoy being a performer and then being able to be in my bus alone. She's conscious of the risks in that potential gulf. I think that's why so many artists do drugs because they're trying to recreate that high of being on stage. When Rodrigo released Sour, she said she was proud that it contained the kind of messy emotions that young women aren't meant to exhibit, a mission statement that her apparently uninhibited rise bore out. It seemed as though she had beaten the game. But her second album, Guts, starts with all-American bitch, a satirical diatribe against the expectations and double standards she still feels bound by. I've experienced a lot of emotional turmoil over having all these feelings of rage and dissatisfaction that I felt like I couldn't express, especially in my job, she says. I've always felt like, you can never admit it, be so grateful all the time, so many people want this position, and that causes a lot of repressed feelings. I've always struggled with wanting to be this perfect American girl and the reality of not feeling like that all the time. A committed teenage perfectionist, she finds it hard to express messy emotions in general, she says. Rodrigo is noticeably more at ease than when we spoke in 2021, when she was still bright with media training, though she's clearly tired and repeatedly apologizes for having a mushy brain and hesitates at specifics. Writing songs is less about expressing herself and more about finding out how she feels, she says. A song is so not good if I can tell it's coming from a disingenuous place. It's like a little lie detector test. A polygraph. When Rodrigo started attempting to write her second album, the polygraph wouldn't even twitch. She had thought of the title Guts as an instinct, conviction, life's dank parts when writing sour. But the songs didn't come easily. There were a few good months where I would sit at the piano and all I would think about was how I was never going to make something good, or all the mean things that people on Twitter would say, or how I wasn't as good as... whatever, she says. Last August, she started sessions at Daniel Nigro's Garage Studio, where they made sour. She eschewed fancier surroundings. Adding a new studio to the mix would have meant more anxiety and doubt. Like, oh my God, we're spending thousands of dollars and I feel like I'm not writing anything good? Some days, she just went in and cried. She says this while smiling, but it sounds punishing. It's the antithesis of creativity, she admits. Also the antithesis of creativity? The current climate where inspiration can quickly become a copyright issue. Sauer was plagued by it. After listeners noted similarities between Rodrigo's song Deja Vu, an ecstatic skewering of her ex for rehashing their favorite pastimes with his new girlfriend, and Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer, as well as between her Good For You and Paramore's Misery Business, Rodrigo ended up giving both acts 50% of the credits and royalties for the respective tracks. Alvis Costello was more sanguine about her song Brutal's Echoes of his Pump It Up. It's how rock and roll works, he tweeted in response to criticism of her. You take the broken pieces of another thrill and make a brand new toy. See also Rodrigo's prescient yell in déjà vu. Everything is all reused. At the time, she said it was disappointing to see people take things out of context and discredit any young woman's work. Did the potential for similar scrutiny make her second-guest writing guts? She grows vague. I was so green as to how the music industry worked, the litigious side. I feel like now I know so much more about the industry, and I just feel better equipped in that regard. It wasn't something I thought about too much. Some fans are convinced that Vampire, specifically the yelled Bloodsucker Fame Fucker bleeding me dry like a goddamn vampire, is about Swift, especially given that signs of their budding friendship vanished after the credits issue. Swift recently invited Sabrina Carpenter, the rumored other party in the driver's license heartbreak, to support her era's tour. How do I answer this? Rodrigo whispers at the table when I ask her. I mean, I never want to say who any of my songs are about. I've never done that before in my career and probably won't. I think it's better not to pigeonhole a song to being about this one thing. She laughs nervously. She often laughs nervously. I was very surprised when people thought that. Reading Julia Cameron's famed creative guide, The Artist's Way, pushed Rodrigo past self criticism, and taking breaks with Nigro's baby gave her perspective. When you're worried, like, oh my God, what's Pitchfork gonna think? she says with strangled mockery, you see a baby and you're like, this is love and light right here. She and Nigro brought in new co writers to freshen their process and because Rodrigo wanted to learn from other people. It's really hard to learn songwriting from a book. Her musical hero, Jack White, also wrote to her, offering three bullet points of advice, including to write what she wanted to hear on the radio. I was going through such a hard time, she says, but for some reason, reading that, I was like, oh my God, she says, that's exactly what I need to do. Rodrigo sought to channel the energy that she had felt live as fans rampaged to her heavier songs. The most invigorating feeling ever. Although there is some of her trademark balladry on guts, it mostly features tart, agitated rock that draws from British indie Wet Leg, US alternative Beck, Smashing Pumpkins, and the feminist punk that Rodrigo's mom introduced her to as a kid, The Waitresses. A good student again. Rodrigo's frustration with men, gender norms, her job, boils over with exhilarating immediacy. It's extremely funny in parts, delivered with gusto by a singer who has sometimes been criticized for sounding stagey. But who knows how to sell a line read? Yes, I know he's my ex, but can two people reconnect? I only see him as a friend, the biggest lie I've ever said. Goes the nihilistic chant, bad idea, right? which throbs with a defiant high of intentional self-sabotage and concludes, I just tripped over and fell into his bed. Rodrigo puts the humor down to being happier than when she made sour. I'm not demolished by my first 17-year-old heartbreak. It's fun to be playful and not take yourself too seriously. But Guts is also strikingly sad, disillusioned about the gap between expectation and reality, musing on social anxiety exploitative relationships, the toll of idealization. Thematically, it resembles Billie Eilish's second album, Happier Than Ever, suggesting a consistent pathology to young fame. When Rodrigo heard Eilish's album, she felt, Oh my God, this bitch read my diary. There are several songs about being gaslit by chaotic older men. Said I was too young, I was too soft, can't take a joke, can't get you off. Rodrigo seethes on the spare logical. Vampire is primarily about a romantic relationship with an older guy, and Rodrigo says the crescendoing rock opera mirrors her burgeoning revelations about being manipulated. Conflicted experiences with older men have been a recent theme in pop, with songs by Swift, Eilish, Demi Lovato, and Phoebe Bridgers resonating with a Me Too generation alert to exploitative power dynamics. Rodrigo demurs at calling her relationships abusive. I don't really know the exact definition. I'd just describe it as not great. She laughs grimly. Not ideal. Guts isn't a breakup album, she clarifies. It's so much about growing up and finding your footing in the world. One standout, The Wall of Sound Lament, Making the Bed, is about Rodrigo coming to distrust herself as newfound stardom briefly warped her priorities pushing away the people who know her, and getting drunk at the club with my fair-weather friends. All the living she has been doing in secret. I was 19 and had all this zest for life, but also was in this industry for the first time. And that can be kind of alluring. Ooh, there's all these exciting people and exciting things. All these fancy, shiny new toys. What was she buying into? She hesitates again. Like weird, interesting friends, or... Getting caught up in artificial interpretations of yourself? I say all of this about separating person from persona, but it's a strange thing when you become successful and get noticed for songs that are super raw and intimate, so on a certain level you feel like people really know you. And they do. But not in a way that your friends or family would know you. It's a little bit of a tricky situation. She asks what the question was and apologizes again for feeling mushy. There's such an archetype of what a pop star should be, she continues. I never really thought of myself as that. It's the term that people throw around. Things you should wear and do and how you should be accessible at all times. And date this person and do that. I wonder if she watched The Idol, the disastrous HBO drama about a young female singer, the machinations of the pop industry and its festering slick of hangers-on. Oh no, she says. I don't have the desire to. I remember walking out of Barbie and being like, wow, it's so long since I've seen a movie that is female-centered in a way that isn't sexual, or about her pain, or her being traumatized. That's another reason why Guts was harder to write, says Rodrigo, being forced to confront uncomfortable truths about her own life. She also had to navigate how to write about the pitfalls of fame while remaining relatable. Even putting fame fucker in vampire, she says, I was like, oh, my God, it's going to isolate people. When Rodrigo turned 20 in February, she says she became overwhelmed by sadness. Like, oh, shit, I worked my whole childhood, and I'm never going to get it back. I didn't go to football games. I didn't have this group of girlfriends that I hung out with after school. That's kind of sad. She says this blithely, with a shruggy caveat. Overshare. Overshare. As a young child, Rodrigo was determined to make it. Her un teacher mom and therapist dad supported her fruitless auditions, but one day suggested she quit if she didn't land the next one. My family is so wonderfully removed, she says. They're so supportive, but zero pressure. They have been since I was a little child actor. Then she scored the lead in an American Girl doll franchise movie. By 12, she had made it to Disney. When we spoke in 2021, I asked Rodrigo if she had felt looked after there. She politely declined to answer, calling it a hot topic and fearing she would get my foot in my mouth. She's since left after Disney allowed her to break her contract for HSM's fourth and final season. I ask if she can answer now. I can't believe I said that, she says quietly. I think it's an interesting situation to be so young working at that level. It's really easy to feel trivialized, or not taken seriously, or... I don't know. My mind is so mushy right now, she whispers. Then holds her throat in both hands and blows out her cheeks. It's just really hard to be a kid and an actor, and you can feel maybe a little taken advantage of sometimes, she says. The responsibility, feeling criticized in public, feeling like you have to work so much... And you see your friends who can go to pool parties and hang out, and you're stuck on set. But, she insists, I wouldn't have it any other way. Rodrigo still seems worried about getting her foot in her mouth. A few days after we meet, she emails me to clarify her gratitude for Disney giving her such an amazing opportunity and facilitating her early departure. I definitely felt how stressful it was to have both full-time jobs, songwriting and acting, And to do them well, she writes. I always knew I wanted to pursue music and focus on songwriting, but at that time it proved difficult to balance both obligations. If she has any explicit grievances with her status, it's how her perceived maturity can be exploited by an industry that puts a premium on women's youth and beauty. They always used to praise me for being this precocious young girl, she says, in Pasadena. That's so much of the praise I get that I'm so impressive because I'm so young doing this. Guts closes with a slow, sad song called Teenage Dream that couldn't be further from the Katy Perry's euphoric life-is-a-buffet banger of the same name. It's about Rodrigo's realization that it wasn't always going to be that way, and wondering what I would lose or how I would become less attractive in certain ways to people. She internalized that mentality. Last time you talked to me, she says, I just remember thinking, I'm so precocious, I know what I'm doing, I got all this under control, I'm so mature. And the older I get, the more I realize that I know very little. Nevertheless, Rodrigo is gambling on losing her precocity, determined that her music should reflect her burgeoning adult reality. Making guts a little dirtier, maybe drinking a little sexier, was never a calculated decision. It never has been. They said that about Sour. A Disney kid saying fuck in a song? She did that to break from the mold. No, I did that because that's how I talk. She's clear that she doesn't regret any of what she sings about on it. I wouldn't have learned it otherwise. You have to go through something to learn about it. You can't be told that it's not going to work. Guts features several lyrics about drinking, but Rodrigo isn't yet of age in the U.S. Do bars make exceptions for celebs? You know, every place is different, she blurts. Who knows? Being so recognizable, surely she would struggle to have a fake ID. No, I know, she laughs. I'm just so scared. I am such a goody-two-shoes. If someone gives me alcohol at a restaurant, I'll be like, thanks. But if they're like, do you have an ID? I'm like, she gasps. No, no, I'm 20, I promise. I'm sorry. I'm such a bad liar. But after swinging too far in the direction of social life, her 2023 New Year's resolution was to spend more time alone. I realized, in my old age of 20, that I would rather spend time with myself than people who make me weary or cause me anxiety or drag me down. She says, caveating her cheesiness, that she had some revelations about love and friendship and trust. That's what was so surprising that you can succeed in all these crazy ways and still feel so insecure and like no one will ever like you or love you. She's tried to turn her relentless self-criticism into something more productive. I grew up with the idea of tortured artists and that there was some nobility in that, she says. I don't think that anymore. I wonder if she was previously drawn to chaotic men as a surrogate outlet for the messiness she couldn't express. Completely, she says. It's a classic good-girl-bad-boy trope. Sometimes, when you feel you have to be perfect all the time, you have to find the chaos in your life a different way. When Vampire finally came out, Rodrigo tried to remember that driver's license set an impossible bar. It's not attainable to try to beat yourself, she says. It felt like lightning in a bottle. Anything public, charting, number ones, all the records. That's just so beyond my control so there's no point in worrying about it. Nevertheless, the promotional grind is on. Bad Idea, right, comes out the week after we meet. It reaches number six in the UK and ten in the US. There are more music videos to shoot. Rodrigo recently bought a place in New York, though she's hardly been there. My mom was just there sending me videos of her putting finishing touches on the furniture. One of her best friends studies in the city. Rodrigo hasn't yet tried to crash a student party, but thinks she could. I'm not like Kim Kardashian, she says. I'm not some crazy super famous person, so I can make it work. Some celebs get people to sign NDAs when they party together, but Rodrigo wouldn't. Maybe I should, she jokes. It would make my anxiety a lot better. But the point of guts, she says, is about being able to learn from your mistakes. It's no small order. As we meet, Rodrigo faces minor criticism for contributing to over-tourism by holidaying in Hawaii, prior to the Maui fire. "'Nobody can be perfect. Ever,' she says. "'It's so funny because I am so straight-laced. But it's hard. I feel super mature in some ways and super stunted in others because of how I've grown up. I have such curiosity to learn and grow and experience things, and how am I ever going to learn if I can't make a mistake in the privacy of my own life?' Rather than the record breaking singles, this may be Rodrigo's specific pop legacy the freedom to make mistakes and not have them be terminal. I wonder whether any other musicians have offered her advice about this very specific trial by fire. Eilish is really sweet and supportive, and Nigro has been at her side throughout. But it's a unique experience, says Rodrigo. There's no rule book. That's the beauty and the anxiety of this job. You forge your own path.
2: That was I Had All These Feelings of Rage I Couldn't Express. Olivia Rodrigo on Overnight Pop Superstardom, Plagiarism and Growing Up in Public by Laura Snapes. Read by sue Braun. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about an upcoming live event. Shantae Joseph will take her podcast, Pop Culture, to the stage for the very first time at the London Podcast Festival on Sunday, the 17th of September at 2pm. She'll be joined by the matchmaking expert, author, entrepreneur and television host, Paul C. Brunson. Together, they will go behind the scenes to discuss the dynamics of TV dating, the key to a successful relationship and how pop culture plays a significant role in our love lives whether we want it to or not. To purchase tickets or to watch via the live stream, go to kingsplace.co.uk forward slash That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Evelyn Miller and Sue Ann Braun. And presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening.
1: This is The Guardian.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee.